0: at the passage. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11, and if if we're just honest, this morning's passage is just kind of a difficult one. It's unusual. Um, I I do think by the end of the morning that you're going to see the relevance of it, see some of the tension that it's probably going to create some conversation. Um, It's a highly debated passage, lots of just kind of strange things and words in there that people are like, I don't know what this, what is Paul talking about? And Paul, for the most part, we've seen in First Corinthians, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to get at his meaning. Um, it's going to be a little, little harder to do that this morning. But this is why we preach the way we do, right? Because First Corinthians, the first part of um, 1 Corinthians 11 is not a passage that er- any pastor going, you know what, I am so excited, I cannot wait, let's go pick that one. But we believe that the Word of God is living, it's active, it's powerful, all of it is from Him, all of it is profitable. And so we want to continue to just work our way through books, even when we come to passages that may be a little bit more of a head-scratcher. Um, Honestly, we're going to have to, it, this morning's passage is a good reminder because what happens to us often is we go to text and if, there's, if it's difficult for us, if we have to wrestle with it at all, if it doesn't make clear, like, I understand how this affects my life, we tend to just walk away from them and find a passage that, that fits more like, well, this helps me on Tuesday, right? And, and passages like this force us to really to wrestle a little bit. It forces us to understand the context that Paul was writing to. Um, and we have to know this morning that, that we have our own ears and our own eyes that are affected by the, by the society and the culture that we live in that then create a filter that we don't even know that we're laying on top of Scripture as we're reading it. And so, we hear words differently than they were originally meant or intended. And so, we have to fight to find what the, the original context and meaning was. Um, right? It's like if, if we were able to fast forward into the future and people were reading about this time place and this time period, they would think millennials and like students were like pyromaniac arsonists, right? Because everything was always lit, right? And they would read it going, when I look at the dictionary as to what lit means, but these people are talking about everything's always lit. Like why are they always setting stuff on fire, right? That, that until like this moment in in, in history, right, right, like that they would, they would have read that word differently than it is currently being used, right, by folks, and so it would make, it would be hard to, to translate a letter between two 19-year-olds right now, not that they would have written a letter, right, they would have texted it, right, but as you and they're like, why, like, why is everything lit, right, and you would have to go back and figure out and study what was going on in 2018, that made this happen. Oh, they don't mean it the way everyone else does. Okay, that helps, right? And that we have to understand that that's some of what is going on here this morning in chapter 11. And before we get into that, just a little bit of recap. We have spent chapters 8, 9, 10... Going through and looking at what Paul is doing is he's writing to the church in Corinth and he's saying, Look, because we are attempting to be reflective of God, because we are going to be the temple, he's not going to build a temple, then we have to reveal God's character. And in chapters eight, nine, and ten, what is what the conversation has looked like is it's been about freedom and the freedoms that we have and the freedoms that we are willing to lay down for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. In specific, they, he wants them to avoid anything that looks like they're associated with or approving of idol worship. Even if they don't actually worship idols, he says, if you give your approval by being present, he's like, it takes honor and glory away from God, and we, we don't want to be a part of that. And so he walks through multiple arguments in those chapters. Now what is going to happen is we start chapter 11, and we'll be chapter 12 and chapter 13 and chapter 14, is he's walking us into a conversation about worship. Now that we've taken our focus off of giving, like, approval and worship to idols, he wants it to be completely focused on what does proper worship look like towards God. And so he is going to both commend the Corinthians for some of the things that they're doing well in their worship, and he is going to correct them for some of the areas where they're not. And so there's going to be multiple facets and aspects of worship hit um, in these next four chapters. Um, with that being said, let's read beginning in verse 2 of chapter 11. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ— The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. and all things are from god so judge for yourselves is it proper for a wife to pray to god with her head uncovered does not nature itself teach you that if a man teach you that if a man wears long hair it is a disgrace for him but if a woman has long hair it is her glory for her hair is given to her as a covering if anyone is inclined to be contentious we have no such practice nor do the churches of god right and so, everyone's like, you know, touching their hair, going, man, Cheryl's the only one who's like, she's wearing a hat, like, she's good, right? So, right, like, <laughs> she's, she's not sure why we're talking about her, right? So, right, this passage, you're going, huh, we don't seem to be doing any of these things this morning. So, why is that, right? So, we understand that some things in Scripture are cultural and some things aren't. How do we determine those things? So what I want us to do this morning is we're going we're gonna to try to answer questions, and you probably will not have all of them answered, all right? But we're going we're gonna to try to answer as many as we can. Um, Paul, first off, do you notice in verse 2 he just says, I commend you that you're doing this, that you are, you're attempting to honor the traditions that have been set before you in regards to worship. Now next week when we get to verse 17 and begin to talk about the Lord's Supper, he will not commend them. They're, they have not followed that tradition well. But the important thing for us to see, even in this initial part, is that not all traditions are bad. We have a tendency sometimes to think of traditional ways as being like holy or traditional ways as being like boring. And Paul is saying, look, some traditions are good, but there has to be a reason behind them. There has to be an answer for them. And so, what he is doing in this section is he's going to attempt to give some theological reasoning from why he's asked them to worship in a certain way. And so, let me just give you a quick example of this. We don't pass an offering basket. If you've been with us more than a week or so, then you've noticed at no point in the service does an offering basket go by. And, and so people will ask why? If we're just like, well, that's our tradition, it's not a good answer. But why is it our tradition? We do it, right, because we say, hey, we want people to give out of, not out of compulsion, but out of like a cheerful heart, that we want them to give and for that to be a moment of worship. And so, people are like, oh, well, that makes sense. And so, if we only had our tradition of we have a basket in the back or you can give online and we never pass a basket, a tradition could also develop that we think that passing a basket is sinful, which we don't, right? So, we have to be able to give some explanation from why the traditions that we have have emerged. And so, that's what Paul is attempting to do here. Ultimately, Here's what's going on. Let's, let's set the scene a little bit. In Galatians 3.28, which Galatians was the first letter from Paul, so they would have had access to this. It, he wrote this line in chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, what Paul is referring to there is that no one has like higher standing before God, right? Like the free man versus the slave, the man versus the woman, the, the Jew or the Greek. He's like, before God, like salvation, our, our salvation is the same, our value, our worth is the same. But what is going on in Corinth is specifically a lot of the women are beginning to take that verse and say, Hey, so if there's no Jew or Greek if there's no male or female, then we can like do away with any distinctiveness of being female. And so they are beginning to uncover their heads in worship. Um, some even going to the point of like wearing, like shaving their heads. Look, their hair's really short. And they're saying, look, we can be like angels that didn't have gender, right? They don't, they're not male or female. They just are. And so that's what we need to do. And so they want to they lose the, the gender distinction that God has set in motion. And they're wanting to, to just kind be, of be fluid in this, thinking that that's what Paul has asked of them in Galatians 3.28. And they would even argue, well, look, we're not even going to be married in heaven. So let's just kind of live like that now. And so we'll just kind of be people, right? And, and, and there'll be no distinction going on and in kind of an already not yet. And so right in just a couple minutes, all of a sudden, this takes on tremendous relevance to where we are in our culture, right? It goes from being, that's a weird passage, move on, to this actually greatly affects our culture and our society right now. So, here's the issue. The issue is, here's what they're doing, and Paul's now addressing it, going, look, I I understand why you're doing what you're doing, but culturally, you're sending off a different message than you intend, And so what would happen in pagan worship, especially in Rome, is that when priests were offering pagan worship, they would often put something over their head. But Paul is going to tell the men, look, we're not pagans, and we're not worshiping idols. And so if you go to cover your head, right, he's like, you're beginning to put off to those outsiders who might be there, or to those who are new into the church, you're saying, hey, this is no different than that guy down the street who's worshiping some false god or some idol. So he's like, so men, we don't cover our head. We want to be distinct. We're showing that we're worshiping the one true God. And then he says, to women, though, I want you to cover your head. Why? Because in this culture, it's an honor and shame culture. It's the same that the Middle East is today. That that a way for a woman to reveal her availability was for her hair to be showing. Right? And so if you were a married woman, you were saying hey, I don't. my marriage vows aren't that significant to me. If you were an unmarried woman, you were saying, I'm immoral, right? This is still current today in the Middle East, that a way that a woman in the Middle East, even though she might have on a veil or a scarf, if she was going to let you know that, that she was available, then she would reveal her hair to you. And so I had this happen to me one day walking down the streets in, in Yemen, I had a woman with a veil on and she comes by and she, she like pulls her veil and her scarf back to the back of her head and like you watched everyone in the street's eyes get like huge because she was making eye contact with me basically saying like here I am. So in our culture, right, this, this would not be due to hair, right? It would be lifting of something else, right? Right? You, that you're revealing something else. It was the same kind of concept here, and so this is the same culture that's going that the hair was considered a, a, sensu- a sensuous thing. And so Paul is saying, "Look, men, I want you to cover your heads so that we're not con- confused as pagans, but women, I want you to cover your head so that you're not seen as immoral or lacking purity, because this, this matters. It was also the ultimate sign of shame and humiliation if a woman's head was shaved. Right? And so a couple times where a woman would have her head shaved, not her decision, would be if her son proved to be a coward in battle or in some situation, what they would do is they would shave his mom's head and set her in front of the public and then put him behind her right? to say, that's what happened to your mom where you have humiliated and shamed her because you're a coward, you're not a man at all. Right? And so they're bringing shame and humiliation, not just upon him, but his mom, and even more so upon him because you've humiliated his mom. Right? This would also, a woman's head could be shaved if she was a known adulterer. Right? Like of saying, hey, you you have used your hair inappropriately, so we're going to remove it so that people know who you are. So this is obviously not the culture that we live in. But this is the culture that is going on in first century Corinth. And so Paul is saying, Look, the way that you're presenting yourself in worship is, is saying something. It is communicating something. And so I want you to handle this correctly, to handle it to handle it well. So let's maybe we need to start here then, or continue here. What is Paul not saying? All right? What is he not saying in, in 1 Corinthians eleven? He is not in any way saying that women are inferior. That is not the point. That is not the goal. He is not saying that women are inferior. Scripture teaches that women are of equal value to men, that not one is above the other in value, in, in savability, right? In the worship they give or the salvation that they receive or access to heaven or in the pleasing of God, men and women, equal value, equal worth. In First Corinthians fifteen forty nine, later in this letter, Paul will say, look, we're both created in the image of God, right? So he's like, look, men and women are equal in value, so he's not saying that women are inferior. Look, look at a, a few ways that he's doing this. In verse 3, um, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So there could be a thought here that he is saying that women are inferior, Right? Because he says that the head of every wife is her husband. But if you want to say that the wife is inferior because the head is her husband, then you have to look at the very next phrase, and the head of Christ is God. Is Paul saying that Christ is inferior? Obviously he's not. Right? He's obviously not saying that Christ is inferior. And so he is not saying that women are inferior. Look down at verse 11 if you need further proof. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So he says, look, yes, a woman was created out of man, but now men are born from women. He's like, we need each other. We are, we are not dependent of each other. We need each other. We are not saying that one is inferior. Verse 9, he says, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Um, it goes on to, the, oh, sorry, verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. We'll get to that in a minute. But woman is the glory of man. Notice he doesn't say that woman is the image of man. Woman is the image of God, just like man is the image of God. But woman was created out of man, if we go back to the creation account. And so she's revealing kind of like the glory of mankind is what it's saying, right? And so as he says this, he's not saying that she's not worth something, that she's inferior. He's saying, that he. so it's not teaching That. It's also not teaching that women can't be involved in worship. Look at verse five. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Do you notice he doesn't say every wife who prays or prophesies dishonors? It's every wife He's assuming that you're doing these things, that you're praying, that you're prophesying, that you're together in worship. He says it's not in that you're doing those things, it's in that you're presenting yourself as a certain type of woman by having your head uncovered while you're doing these things. And so he is not teaching that women are inferior. He's not teaching that women can't be involved in worship. And here's the third one. He's not teaching that scarves are universal, right? There's a reason there are no scarves in the room this morning, right? And it's not because you're all in sin, right? They, this was a cultural issue for this time and this place in Corinth. Now, here's the danger in having what's cultural and what's not, is that if, we, if we're not careful, what we'll do is any passage in Scripture that we don't like, we don't, you know, it's like, oh, that's a little uncomfortable. Cultural, don't have to do it, Right? Cultural, don't have to do it. So there's a danger here in being able to just carte blanche say that something is cultural. So, how do we know what things are cultural and what things are mandated from God for eternity, right? That are forever. So there's um, John Piper, a pastor, has created kind of a helpful rubric here. The first is this that if a teaching from God is rooted in creation, right? This is how God has set things in motion from the beginning before sin. Those things tend to be intentional forever. It's the way God intended things to be, okay? Another one would be, um, is there a consistent command of this in throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament? Do we just see it repeated over and over and over again? Then it's probably probably eternal, probably forever. Does it have any relationship to the gospel that if we lose this item, that we lose a portion of the gospel, then it's probably forever? Or is it clearly invalidated by the New Testament? So let me give you an example. In the Old Testament, we see all of these rules about what the Jews could or could not eat. And then Peter has this vision in Acts where the Lord lets down this thing that looked like a sheet with all manner of animals and tells him to eat. And Peter's like, oh, I don't eat that, I know the scriptures and God tells him three times and he says you don't call unclean what I have called clean. So in this passage, in this vision in Acts, God is invalidating, right, and saying like, look, we don't keep those dietary laws any longer because something has trumped it. All right? And so that that makes the dietary laws a cultural issue that's not a forever issue. And so as we look at headscarves, is there any relation to the gospel? Do we lose any aspect of the gospel? if a woman has a scarf on or not. No, because headscarves aren't the primary issue here. The primary issue is proper worship. And its proper worship is in how are you presenting yourself and who are you giving the honor and the glory to. Is, it, is a headscarf rooted in creation? Was Eve created with her head covered? No, right? She wasn't. Is it a consistent command that we see, thou shalt wear headscarves, thou shalt not go out without? We don't see that throughout Scripture. And so what we see is that this is not mostly about women covering this, their heads. It's mostly about worship, and are they properly coming before the Lord in worship men and women both? So it's not saying that women are inferior. It's not saying that women can't be involved in worship. And it's not saying that headscarves are eternally universal. So what is this passage saying? This passage is about blurring created distinctives in creation. It 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 is about blurring gender distinctives. Because in creation, before the fall of man, if we look at Genesis one and Genesis two, God created man and he created woman, and they are distinct. And they are equal in value and they are distinct in role. That that was God's intent. That was His design. That was His plan. And it's why when we are in glory someday in heaven with Him, there will still be male and female. That we will be before Him still male or female, even though we won't be married. And so He is teaching that there is distinctions in creation. So look at verse 7, 8, and 9. He goes back to the creation account. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. Listen. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So this, the language here, is, it, it gives some of you women, like, you want to put your hands up, right? You're like, I don't like what this is saying. But listen, he's simply reminding them of the creation account. That who was created first? It was man. Right from the dust, woman was created literally from the man. And why was she created for the man to be a suitable helper? He's not saying that, that, that men don't serve women, he's saying that the woman was first created as a help, a suitable helper for her husband, not that woman was created first and then man was raised up. Right? He's simply recounting the creation story equal value distinct roles, and there were created God-intended gender distinctives in Scripture from the beginning. He's also saying this, that the point of worship is that not all worship is the same. He's obviously commending some of their worship, and he's saying some of it's not okay, but they're doing the same thing. And so it's who is receiving the honor, the glory in worship matters. And so, some of these people are saying we're giving God the glory, and they are actually taking it for themselves. So, how are they doing this? I want you to imagine this morning, if I, have, if I was preaching this sermon in a dress, okay? It's an ugly picture, I know. <laughs> but if, if that was going on, there would not be a lot of, like, this is an interesting passage we're considering. It would be like, what is Jeremy doing? Why are his legs so hairy, Right? Like why, like, why is he revealing himself in that manner, right? And, and so, would, would Jesus be receiving any honor or any glory this morning? Even if I was preaching the same sermon, even if I was raising my hands in worship? No, because your attention would not be on Jesus. It would be on me. And I could say with all my heart and all my sincerity, to God be the glory. And what I've done is I've taken the glory for myself or the shame, whatever, right? Like, it may not be that you were applauding it but it's obvious that Jesus isn't receiving the glory in the same manner, right? No one is looking at women in the room whose hair is showing and going, so tacky, right? So inappropriate, so provocative, right? But the fact is, is you could have walked in this morning and had those responses based on your attire. You could have done that, That there are things that you could have warned that society would say, yes, right, women do as you will. That this morning, people wouldn't be paying attention to what Jesus is saying or teaching or revealing. They'd be paying attention to you. And you would be saying, I'm just here to worship Jesus. No, you're not. You're here to receive praise and glory or attention, even if it's shame, like you're looking to gain something. So what Paul is saying, he's like, you want to you worship God, you want to honor God, then culturally there's some things that we restrain from, that we refrain from, so that God's the one that receives the glory. So men, you don't look like pagans when you pray. So this would say, guys, if there is something, some hairstyle, some clothing, if there was something that would, would signify us as being opposed to Jesus, then we wouldn't do that this morning women, if there is something that you would do that would signify, I want you to pay attention to me and not to Jesus, even if the words of my mouth are, I love Jesus. He's like, then that's to be avoided this morning. And so the head scarves were simply a way in their culture to say, if your head's not covered, people are talking about how available you are, right? And what role they might play in that. And it's taking the attention off of Jesus, it's putting it onto you, and it's leading people into sin. And so I get Paul saying, I get that you're saying, look, we're free from that. But that's been the whole point of Corinthians so far. Yes, we are free to do as we will. But for the sake and for the benefit of others, we don't cross all of those lines. Because the point isn't our glory, it's the glory of God. So when I was in Yemen, I wore a skirt quite often. It's called a Mawaz. It was this wraparound skirt. Because in Yemen, a man is not allowed to wear shorts, okay? doesn't matter if you have board shorts on that are past your knees. If you were in shorts in Yemen, they would say you're in your underwear. No matter how not, like cargo short, baggy, wouldn't matter that you're in your underwear. But a man's skirt, a Malwhiz, is allowed. It's hot in Yemen, right? So guess what? I've never really desired to wear my Malwhiz, my man's skirt, in, in Pampa, Right? It would draw a different level of attention. But you better believe that when I was in a culture where that was the means of staying cool, and it was culturally appropriate, and I was not communicating anything other than that, that I wore it. So, Paul is saying there are some cultural things going on here in this context, in this setting, that help us to understand the point is proper worship of God, not in what we wear. Right? It's in proper worship of God. He is going to continue this conversation to say, look, with spiritual gifts, with tongues, with our actions in worship, we can still, we can put ourselves out there as being uber spiritual, and we're really detracting from worship. He's going to continue this line of rationale and thought in these next few chapters. All right, so in verse… Sorry, I just lost it. Uh, The woman… Yes, verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I don't know, okay? I don't know. There's some thoughts here. Why, why should a woman cover her head because of the angels? Maybe it's because, you remember earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul says there will be a day where we will judge the angels. Maybe it has something to do there. Maybe it has to do with the fact that in in Isaiah 6, we see the angels, right, covering their face before God, right? Like that their demeanor before God is in proper respect and authority, and so they want to see us doing the same thing, Um, right? Maybe it's that the woman is the glory of man, right? That she is the crown, like jewel, the beauty of creation, right? And that if the angel's attention is drawn to her, if our attention is drawn to her, then it's away from God. I don't know, okay? It could be any of those. It could be none of those. That's, it's one of those verses that people will just kind of throw their hands up and are like, we're not really sure what Paul's talking about here. But ultimately, here's where we're going to be. That this is about the, the we don't want to blur created distinctions in creation. And so Paul goes on to say, Verse 14, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but a woman has long hair, it's her glory. When he says nature, he means like culture. Does not like, like that society has rules. And basically what he's saying is the things that would make a man look effeminate, like there's a reason that you should be ashamed of that. Because there's gender distinctions that God has created. And so, anything that would distort that, and in this culture, right, we, we've, we see that, right, um, Samson had long hair, right? It's not that Scripture forbids all long hair. But in this culture, long hair was a sign of that you were effeminate, that you were attempting to look like a woman, to gain attention, right, that Scripture would call sinful. And so, it's saying anything that will distort what God has made distinct, right, that's the issue. The issue we live in, though, is Isaiah 5.20 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That we live in a culture, and the filter that we have is that people are calling evil good and calling good evil and are trying to blur the lines here and make it where there is no gender distinction. It's just people and yet we see that it created before the fall that God had intent and plan. All right, so here's where we're going to end this morning. There are biblical distinctives, but here's the thing. The church, culture, society have created and added some that aren't from Scripture. And so men have used passages like this to like lord over women. And that's not what Paul's calling us to. He's not saying, make sure you keep her in her place. That is not the call of Scripture. The call of Scripture is that as men that we are to present our wives, right? Right? Better because they were married to us. Not that we held them in their place. And so, if there are going to be biblical distinctives, then make sure they're from Scripture and not just from culture. Right? And so, that means that we're not looking to hold women down means that we look for opportunities to to protect morality and purity. We, We see that in Scripture that we are called to submit. We're called to submit to the government. We're called to submit to church elders. We're called to submit to our parents. We're called to submit to God Himself. Spouses are called to submit to one another. Submission is not a bad thing. Biblical authority is a good thing. But here's the thing. Some churches and some people have taught that all women submit to all men. And that's not the case, right? Carson will submit to me, and she will submit to God, and she'll submit to her mother, right? To the church elders. She, she will not submit to every man who wants to dictate something to her. That's not what Scripture teaches. And so, right, we, we can't take extra biblical things and say, hey, this is a biblical tradition. If there is distinction, we have to make sure it's from Scripture, We have to understand that there has been a fall, that sin has entered the world. And so, right, what was the fall? Rebellion occurred, and the curse happens, that men are going to lean in one of two ways. They're either going to be really passive because work is hard, or they're going to be really embracing of their work and arrogant regarding it because work is hard, so they need to give themselves to it. And that women are going to long for control, right, and for leadership that God has given to men. It's not that women aren't leaders. We have to have space. Make this super culturally appropriate here. We have to have space where women are in deer stands, right? Like that that's not the man's domain. And that men are allowed in the church, I mean in in the kitchen, right? Like that what has happened is sometimes culture has dictated, not from Scripture and says, men don't do these things Women don't do these things. Men only do these things. Women only do those things. And Scripture is silent on it. And that's not, so we don't say, thus saith the Lord. But we do say, God has created male and female. And he's done it distinctly for his glory, for his intent. And so, here's where we're going to end this. That we want to see those differences in gender. And we want to celebrate them because God is good and right and holy in that right? We want to understand that culturally those things will look different. Then in Yemen, dudes are wearing skirts, and it doesn't make them not men. And in Pampa, that's not happening, right? Right? Like the, There could be some cultural differences, but the point is within culture, can we see and celebrate the distinctions of gender? Ultimately, what Paul is wanting us to get here is that Jesus is worthy of our worship, And if He's worthy of our worship, why would we want to, like, offer worship that dishonors Him? And listen, worship that doesn't trust Him, that doesn't obey Him, that brings glory to yourself instead of Him, is not honoring to Him, no matter what you want to call it. And so, if we say, God, we think you're wrong on the gender issue. We're going to do our thing. What you're saying is, let the glory of man show. Let the wisdom of man be, be worshipped and, and applauded instead of the glory of God. That will say that right now this is going to create some tension and some issue and some struggle for us, right? That we're going to have to wrestle with of how do we live in distinction and honor the Lord in a culture that says what is good is bad. What's bad is good. But that we want to honor fruitful, healthy, God-honoring worship to him giving him the glory, not dismissing it or discrediting it or taking it from him. So this is Paul's initial foray into several chapters on worship. It's an interesting first step, right? But I hope that you'll stay with us because we're going to see different things kind of built up as to what this will look like to be a healthy church with both men and women flourishing In their God given roles and distinction, and giving God the glory because they're of equal value. Because Jesus is worthy of our worship, He's worthy of it. Let's pray.